This is Beit Shan, the location of the shocking and disappointing end to Jonathan's life. Jonathan was the son of King Saul of Israel, and he played a major part in David's story. But his life was marked by sacrifice. Jonathan was the son of a king who chose a path that few princes would ever dream of taking. He chose a path of sacrifice and friendship, a friendship that would cost him more than he could ever imagine. What is up, Northridge Church? Welcome. It's great to have you. I want to welcome Webster, Aranakoy, Henrietta, and Greece, those of you who are engaging with us online, and all of our guests here this morning. Thanks and welcome to Northridge Church. And, and our goal really is as you experience Northridge Church and you continue to experience Northridge Church, that what might feel like a crowd right now begins to transition into what feels like a family. But thanks for being here this morning. And we're in week three of a series we're calling Portraits of a King, where we're looking at the books of First and Second Samuel and we're zooming into David, King David's life. And we've looked at certain circumstances already in David's life, events that have taken place. The first one was he was anointed to be the next king of Israel, and now he's kind of living in this limbo state where he knows his future, but he's not there yet. We also last week looked at one of the most famous circumstances in David's life is when he slayed a giant. We looked at a different perspective of that story, and in week three, we're going to really zoom in around a couple circumstances in David's life, but really more a relationship that he had in his life, and so you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where we're going to be. I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, your iPhone, your tablet, jump into 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to really be walking through this text. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Northridge Bibles. It's going to be on page 230. If you got your booklet, you can also turn to page 24. That's where we're going to be keeping notes. You can grab your app or your program to do that as well. And we, we really see the, the scene, the context to begin to unfold. In verse 1, it says this. It says, Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? And so here we, we kind of see the scene beginning to unfold. David comes to Jonathan. And Jonathan is the prince of Israel. He's King Saul's son. And David and Jonathan have a friendship that has been built up to this point. And David comes to Jonathan and he says, listen, what have I done that your dad is trying to kill me? What, what crime have I committed that the king is after me? And not only is he after me, but he wants me dead. And you might even ask that same question because the last place we left David off was he was slaying a giant. He was saving Israel's butts. He was stepping in when nobody else would. How does he go from a victor to now running for his life? And you have to really go back to chapter 18. We, give, we get a little insight into this. Verse 5 says this. It says, David went everywhere that Saul sent him and did well. Saul had him lead the men of war, and it was pleasing to all the people and Saul's servants. When David returned from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, the woman came out and all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul and played songs of joy on the timbrels. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has killed thousands and David his tens of thousands. Then Saul became very angry. The saying did not please him. He said, they have given David honor for 10,000, but me only thousands. Now what more can he have but to be king? And Saul was jealous and did not trust David from that day on. 
So you see, in chapter 16, David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. Chapter 17, he's defeating a giant named Goliath. And from that moment on, David begins to grow in popularity. All of Israel loves David, rightfully so. He saved him. He stepped in and fought when nobody else will. And David is growing in popularity, but there's one person that doesn't really like David. His name is King Saul. And the sole reason why he doesn't like David is because he's jealous of him. In fact, in chapter 18, it says right in this text, it says, Saul was so jealous that he never trusted David from that point on in his life. He, he gave up his trust in David. His jealousy led him to that point. And from chapters 18 all the way to chapters 24 in 1 Samuel, David and Saul play this cat and mouse game where David is jumping from city to city, running from Saul, who's in hot pursuit to get rid of David and his popularity. And so for about eight to ten chapters, David is running for his life, hiding in caves because Saul is trying to kill him. And you'll notice throughout these chapters that David clang to one thing. Not one thing, but one thing majority. His relationship with God and then his relationship with his best friend, Jonathan. And this narrative is not really to teach us about relationships, but I think there's some moments and some pockets in David's life and in his relationship with Jonathan that we can pull out this morning and learn about our relationships. And here's what I think we're going to learn overarching. I think we're going to learn the value of biblical friendship, the value of biblical friendship. You know that word, just that word friendship. In our culture today, it's being devalued. It's being demonized. Because, I mean, we live in a culture that is tech-driven, and that's a great thing. Technology can help our relationships, but what I found to be true is technology is actually destroying our relationships. It's hurting our relationships. Because, I mean, let's be honest, it's so much easier to text somebody than rather, rather than have a face-to-face -face conversation. It's so much easier to hide behind Instagram or Facebook and post what we wouldn't say to somebody face-to-face, -face, but we can do it behind a screen. And, and, and relationships as a whole are being devalued in our culture. Let me share uh, just some stats with you. The average adult in the United States spends 10 hours and 39 minutes consuming media each day. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. 10 hours and 39 minutes of media every single day. And just four years ago, it was an hour less. And so we're not going the right direction. We're going the wrong direction. 70% of women said smartphones interfered with their relationships. Someone said anonymously, we're allowing technology to kill our relationships because we tend to give our phone more attention than we do our partner. And man, I'm guilty of this. I have a four-year-old. Her name's Joelle. And how many times in, in, in my life I'm coming home from work I'm tired, I just want to veg on the couch, and the way I veg or relax is I throw the TV on, watch some sports, or I scroll through my phone, and how many times has my four-year-old daughter put her hand on my arm and said, Daddy, would you put your phone down and just pay attention to me? And parents, we've been there. Grandparents, we've been there, where we put technology in front of relationships, and I think this story with David and Jonathan, it should bring us back to the value of the relationships that God has placed in our life, the, the, the friendships that we have, and here's why relationships are so important. You might hear this a lot in our church. You will hear this a lot in our church. Here's the reality is you won't grow spiritually unless you are connected relationally. 
You won't. I mean, just for a moment, I know you might have heard that statement before, but let the gravity of it sink in for a second. Man, our goal as Christ followers who have said yes to Jesus, he's forgiven us and he's leading our life, our whole goal is to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. It's half of our mission. And if, if we're not connected with people and relationships, that stunts our, our, our growth in God. And so David comes to Jonathan, his friend. He says, your dad is trying to kill me. Jonathan responds, verse 2, it says this, Jonathan said to him, far from it, you will not die. See, my father does nothing big or small without telling me about it. So why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David answered, your father knows well that I've found favor in your eyes, he has said. Do not let Jonathan know this because it would fill him with sorrow. But it is true. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is only a step between me and death. And so Jonathan responds to David's accusations. David says, your, your dad's trying to kill me. And, and Jonathan's like, well, hold on a second, David. My dad is, is the king of Israel. I'm the prince of Israel. And my dad doesn't do anything without running it by me. It can't be true, David. It can't be. And then David does something really hard. He presses back. He says, listen, Jonathan. This is going to be hard to share, but your dad's hiding this from you. You want to know why? Because he knows we're good friends. He knows you love me, and he knows this would hurt, him, hurt you if you found out, and so he's keeping it from you. And here we begin to see how friendship begins to unfold in our lives and in David and Jonathan's life. You see, friendship, relationships begin with knowing and sharing. Friendship begins with knowing and sharing. In order to build relationships, we got to be willing to, to share our lives and listen to someone else share their life, to know and to be known. But I believe this is one of the greatest stumbling blocks with relationships, because we've done it before and we've gotten burned. We confided in somebody and they turned their back on us. They used the information we gave against us. And what happens is, is in our culture today, we've been burned by other relationships. Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a best friend, a family member. They burned us. And so what we do from that moment on is we build these walls. We build these walls of protection. We don't want to get hurt again. Because if I'm vulnerable with somebody, if I let somebody know who I really am, not the fake me, but the real me, it sets me up to be hurt. And we don't want that. So we just kind of build these walls of protection. I don't want to get hurt anymore. And sometimes these walls are healthy, but sometimes and a lot of times they're not really healthy. And what it leads us to is relationships that are about that deep. We know people, but we, they don't really know us, what's going on in our lives. And, and, and we have to understand that relationships begin when we're willing to be vulnerable again, when we're willing to be transparent, when we're willing to confide in somebody and say, hey, this is me. Not, 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 not the pretend me, not the I'm okay me. This is really me. And that's where relationships begin. And David shares some hard information with Jonathan. And so they come up with this plan to figure out who's telling the truth. It says this in verse 5. It says, David said to Jonathan, see, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should sit down to eat with the king. But let me go. I will hide myself in the fields until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David has asked me to let him leave to run to his city, Bethlehem. It is time for the whole family to gather, for there is a gift given on the altar and worship each year. If he says, good, your servant will be safe. 
But if he is angry, then you will know that he has decided to do what is bad. So be kind to your servant, for you have brought me into this agreement of the Lord with you. But if I am guilty, kill me yourself. For why should you bring to me, so why, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that my father has decided to do something bad to you, would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father is angry when he answers you? Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out to the fields. So both of them went out into the field. And so David and Jonathan begin this plan. David says, your father's killing me. Jonathan's like, ah, I'm not sure. And so they come up with this plan. And this plan is pretty simple. You see, it was the new moon. And, and I know some of you, you read your Bible and you see new moon and you're like, did we just enter like the Twilight movie or something like that? But new moon simply means it's the start of a brand new month. You see, they went, according to this culture, by a lunar calendar. And so new moon just simply meant, hey, we're starting a brand new month. And according to the Old Testament, it was time to sacrifice. And so David knew that he had to be in the presence of the king for a festival, a celebration. But David says to Jonathan, hey, I'm going to miss being with the king. Uh, you tell him I'm going back to my family to offer sacrifices. And based on how the king responds, you'll know if I'm telling the truth or not. If I'm not there and the king's okay with it, you'll know he's not trying to kill me. But if I, I'm missing and the king flips out, he becomes angry, you'll understand that he's after me. And again, we see this, this, this spot in David's life where he puts his complete trust in Jonathan. And you see, in relationships, when we begin to know somebody, the knowledge shared in friendship builds trust, which leads to loyalty. And that's exactly what happens in Jonathan and David. The, the knowledge that they shared in their friendship, it built this trust, which led to loyalty. It led to loyalty. And they got to this point where David literally puts his hands, his life, in the hands of Jonathan. Because it would have been easy for Jonathan to be like, hey, Dad, I know where David is hiding. I know where he's going to be the next three days. Take your army. Let's go get rid of this guy. I'll be the next king of Israel. I mean, it would have been easy for, David, or for Jonathan to say that to his, his dad, but David put his complete trust in Jonathan's hands. And you see, that's really where we want to get to in our relationships is trusting somebody enough where we're loyal to them, where we can put our own life in their hands, but that doesn't just happen. It's not just easily achieved. In fact, what I've found to be true about my life, maybe it's true about your life, is, you know, we aren't loyal until we trust. And so there's a flow here. We have to learn to trust somebody before we become loyal to them. But how do we get to that trust moment? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to be loyal to somebody I don't trust, but here's, here's the next reality is I'm not going to trust somebody until I know them. And we, we don't trust until we know. I mean, this is the ebb and flow of all relationships, whether it's a marriage, a friendship, a family relationship. Actually, it's even true about our relationship with God. Is in order to have a relationship with God, we have, to, we have to know him. We have to spend time in his word. We have to get to know him by praying and, and, and being with him and spending time with him. And when we get to that knowledge of how much God loves us and how much he cares for us and what he gave up for us, that knowledge leads us to a place where we trust God where we trust God with our life, we trust God with our family, our kids, our finances, and every nook and cranny of our lives. You see, that knowledge leads us to trust, and that trust leads us to loyalty. That no matter where God takes us in life, no matter what he takes from us or keeps from us, no matter where he leads us, we remain true to who he is. 
And that's how relationships work. It starts with knowledge. Hey, this is who I am. And that knowledge, when you share it and someone else shares it, it builds a bond of trust. It's what's happening in David with David and Jonathan. And now they're loyal. And here's the outcome of that. The outcome of relationships that, that flow that way. When you trust someone, you're willing to sacrifice for them. When you truly trust somebody in a healthy relationship, you're willing to sacrifice for them. And I think for a moment, we, we have to step back. Because I think we fail to realize how much Jonathan is giving up in this relationship. Remember who Jonathan is. For Jonathan to be a friend of David, he gave up a lot. Remember, Jonathan is the prince of Israel. He's the rightful heir to the kingdom. He's the next king in line. And so for Jonathan to serve David and to be David's friend, what he's doing is he's sacrificing his kingship to promote David's kingship. He's giving up his rightful place as the next king and making David it. Not only is he doing that, but he's betraying his father. He's surrendering his, his trust in his father and he's placing it in David. I mean, I don't care how good of a leader your dad is or how strong of a king he is. Man, to betray your dad's a difficult thing to do, even if he's doing the right or wrong thing. And Jonathan, he trusts David so much that he's willing to give up his kingship, his ability to be king, and he's turning his back on his dad. I mean, that's a radical kind of love, trust and loyalty to a person. In fact, it's what Jesus did for us. I mean, Jonathan's a beautiful picture of Jesus because Jesus gave up his kingdom in heaven and he left it and he came to earth and he died on a cross and rose again so we could be a part of his kingdom. I mean, Jonathan is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. The Bible speaks about this kind of sacrifice and love. In John chapter 15, verse 13, it says this, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. But I'm afraid just... To be real. Because, man, that's not what my friendships look like. That's not how I do things. Because, I mean, let's, let's, let's be real. You know, I mean, hey, we, we make friends to promote ourselves. What's in it for me? That's the motto we live out. Like, hey, I'll be your friend, but what can you give to me to make me better? And Jonathan turned that completely upside down. He flipped the script. He said, hey, I'm just going to serve you, David. I'm going to love you, David. I'm going to trust you. And I'm just not sure maybe we get there fully with our relationships. We should. Eugene Peterson speaks to this. He says this. He says, friendship with David complicated Jonathan's life enormously. He risked losing his father's favor and willingly sacrificed his own royal future. But neither the risk nor the loss deterred him. He became and stayed David's friend. That's true biblical love. And I believe this is how God wants every believer to feel towards all believers. The sacrificial love was the driving force of Jesus' life and ministry, and it still is today. Without it, we will never accomplish the work of reconciliation. We simply cannot do it without understanding that his love compels us to love our enemies. What a ridiculous kind of love. A love that, that spans beyond differences. A love that spans for all believers. I mean, that's the way Jesus loved. So David and Jonathan start this plan, and they continue at verse 18. It says this, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because you, your seat will be empty. On the third day, hurry and come to the place where you hid yourself the other time. Stay by the stone called Ezeel. 
I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as if I've shot at the mark. Then I will send a boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy these words, see, the arrows are on these, this side of you. Get them. Then, they, then you may come, for it is safe for you and there is no danger, as the Lord lives. But if I say to the boy, see, the arrows are farther away, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement you and I have spoken, see, the Lord is between you and me forever. And so they finalize this plan. Based on how the king responds to David's absence, Jonathan is going to go out and he's going to shoot three arrows. He knows exactly where David is hiding. As he shoots these three arrows, he's going to send a servant boy with a message. And based off of what that message is, David will know how to respond. If it's a safe message, David can come back to the kingdom. But if it's, 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 a, it's a message of warning, David's going to flee and hide for his life. And we know as the story goes further on that Jonathan sends those arrows and he says, hey, you need to get out of here because he realizes David was right. His father was trying to kill him. And so David flees the kingdom. And I think for a lot of us, when it comes to relationships, this is like our greatest fear is, is a circumstance like this. Because you can imagine, this wasn't easy for David and Jonathan to walk through. I mean, can you imagine, I know this maybe doesn't translate into our culture, maybe it does for some of you, but it's probably rare that, you know, your best friend comes up to you and says, hey, your, your dad's trying to kill me. <laughs> oh, wow, I don't even know how to handle that one. But we've been through scenarios like this, where we walk through difficult things in our marriage, in our family, in our friendships, in our dating relationships. And honestly, when it comes to relationships, these are the things that we want to avoid at all costs. Because our fear is that difficult storm that we have to deal with in our family, our marriage, our dating relationships is going to ruin it. It's going to be hard. And what I want you to see in this relationship with David and Jonathan is they were good friends and they walked through a hard circumstance, but the relationship stayed the same. Why? How? Because friendship built on the right things can withstand the hard things. Relationships built on the right things can withstand the hard things. Here's the problem with a lot of our relationships, and I'm guilty of this, is we build them on the wrong things. You see, when it comes to dating, we, we build our relationship on attraction. We build our relationship on physicality. And we think those things will get us through those difficult things. But the moment, we wonder why the moment it gets rough, the, the, the physicality and the attraction goes away. You want to know why? Because there's a, another pretty girl or another pretty guy out there who you might get along with better. We, we, we wonder in our marriages, we wonder why 50, I forget the stat, but like 50% of our marriages are failing in our culture today. It's because we're building them on the wrong things. Our families, our dating relationships, our coworker relationships. You see, what you should build your relationships on, first and foremost, is the word of God. You should build your relationships starting with the word of God on trust, on loyalty, on vulnerability on transparency. And when you build your relationships on those things, when it gets difficult, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying you can withstand the storm. Because your, your, your relationship isn't built on shaking sand, but it's built on a rock-solid foundation that it doesn't matter how big the storm is, you can stand there and you can hold on. And David and Jonathan are just one example in the Bible of a relationship that went through difficult things and made it because they were built on the right thing. 
And so as we look at this story, a story of best friends who walk through a difficult circumstance, what can we take from this? How can this change my life today, Drew, a story that's thousands of years old? And I really want to just give you one thing, one strategic focus this morning that I think we can take home from. And it's, it's something simple, something that you've heard before. But I think we have to get to the place, and I think this story yells it loud and clear. We have to get to the place where we can't and we don't do life alone. We can't and we don't do life alone. You see, you were designed, you were created to be in relationships. That's the reality. God made you that way. And honestly, I know it's easier to, to stay out of them. I mean, it's just easier to, to just stay away from people because guess what? People are messy and people bring problems. And honestly, you don't want to deal with them. I get that in my line of work. Trust me. And probably for all of us, it would just be so much easier if we, we just kind of stayed in, in the realm of our family, dug a hole and said, leave us alone. I mean, sometimes I think about doing that. I'm not going to lie. But that's not the way God designed us, and that's not the mission God has for us. And we have to learn, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you need people in your life. That's the reality. There's no argument to it, because guess what? My creator made you that way. He made me that way. And I want to show you something in David's life that really emphasizes this. It happened later from this story. You see, David leaves the, the, the kingdom, and he's hiding. He's running from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him, and he's hiding, and he's going from cave to cave. And look what happens in David's life. Chapter 23, verse 14, it says this. It says, David stayed in the safe places in the desert. He stayed in the hill country in the desert of Zimph. Saul looked for him every day, but God did not give David to him. He saw that David saw that Saul had come out to try to kill him. And David was in the desert of Zimph at Horsh, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horsh and gave him strength in God. He said to him, don't be afraid, because my father Saul will not find you, and you will be king of Israel, and I will be next to you. My father Saul knows this. So the two of them made an agreement before the Lord, and David stayed at Horsh, and Jonathan went home. And you know, when you, when you think about David, David is one of the most famous Bible characters. I mean, there's statues all over the world of David. David is a giant slayer. David is a man of great faith. David is a, a king, a leader. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And if all people, you would think David would be the guy who didn't need anybody. But look at this moment in David's life. He's running for his life. He's hiding in caves. He's probably tired. He's probably wondering, God, you said I'd be the next king. And here I am in a cave with bats and sheep. This doesn't look like a kingdom to me, God. And guess what happens? This giant slayer, this king, the future king, guess what happens? It says this. It says Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David. And you know what he did? The Bible says he gave him strength in God. Man, if David needs somebody, I'm telling you, I need somebody. And this passage screams that we can't do life alone. Because here's why. Doing life alone stunts your spiritual growth. Doing life alone stunts your spiritual growth. That's the reality. And maybe you're willing to, to stay away from people to lose spiritual growth. If that's your choice, I can't stop you. 
But David would have probably never got through these moments if it wasn't for his relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan gave him strength. He says, you don't have to be afraid, David, because you will be the next king of Israel. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need people, the people of God, to remind me of my future that God has for me. Anybody with me? Sometimes I need someone to say, Drew, you don't need to be afraid because God's got this. I mean, there's moments in my life where I'm like, ah, I don't know, God. And how many times in those moments has God sent a wave of people to say, hey, trust in him? We all need people to push us to the cross, to remind us of the mission God has for us. And so here's what I believe based off this passage. I believe every single person needs two things in life when it comes to relationships. I think the first one is community. We all need a community, a community of people who surround us. And the way we do that at Northridge Church is through our community groups. Man, it's not the best way. It's not the only way. But it's the way we allow what feels like a crowd. We push people from the crowd outside of rows and into homes and circles and relationships. And it's been amazing to hear the stories of people. We, we launched groups just a couple weeks ago. And man, it's been amazing to hear the stories of how God has used new people getting into groups and how they've built some relationships and how they have been taught to apply the Bible and build relationships and care for one another. And listen, I'm not promising you in our groups that you'll find a relationship like David and Jonathan. I already, I already kind of set those expectations. Like I'm not promising that, but I'm promising the community of people who will push you towards God to help you apply the Bible and to be cared for. I'm in a community group. We meet Tuesdays at 6.30. There's like 25 adults and like 7,000 kids. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's like, wow. We all need community. But I think the second thing we need is something maybe that has gone missing. And, and it's, it's what I like to call someone who invests in you, someone who's pouring into you. This is kind of like a one-on-one -on -one basis. I call it a mentor. And I just believe this. I believe every person should have a mentor in their life. Someone who's investing in them, who's been there, who's done that, and is saying, hey, let me guide you. Let me help you. In my life, I have mentors. I have pastors who lead large churches who have been there, who are wiser than I am, who have walked down that trail before. And you know what they do? They, they encourage me. They coach me. They make sure I'm taking care of my family. They call out my blind spots. And I believe we all need this in our lives. And, and I think at Northridge Church, you know, we're a young church. Lead pastor is 32 years old. We're full of young families. And then there's a good, uh, uh, there's a good amount of people who find themselves in this age group of like 50 to 80 years old. I call it the older generation. I'm sorry if that hurts. And I think there's people in that age group that could come to Northridge Church and think, man, this is a young church. It's progressive. The music's loud. Where, where, do, where do I fit in? You know, what's my role to play? And man, if you find yourself in that category, I, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. We need your wisdom. We need your wisdom. And I'm telling you, the older generation should be passionate about pouring into the new and next generation. And we're seeing it all throughout our church. We're seeing community groups of the older generation adopting younger generation community groups and pouring and investing into them. We're seeing the older generation pouring into our teens and our kids' ministry. But I'm telling you right now, there's a, a, a mom and a, a dad who are young and, and don't have it all together, and they would love a couple that would surround them with love and be available and lead them. We need your wisdom. 
And maybe why I'm so passionate about this is because I've seen it impact my life tremendously. You see, when I was 22 years old, I, and my, my wife and I, we made a, a big-time decision to move from the area we knew and grew up in and to go to Atlanta, Georgia. We lived in the Pennsylvania, Baltimore region up to that point, and that's what we knew. And God led us to, to take a ministry in Atlanta, Georgia. And the scary thing was, is when we moved there, we didn't know a single soul in the entire state. And so our concern wasn't like, hey, what house are we going to find? Or where are we going to live? It was like, are we going to have any friends? Are we going to build any relationships? Like, are we just going to be alone? And I remember the weekend we were flying to, to look at houses to rent or to buy. And, and the church that I was going to be working at, they gave me a, a name and a number of a real estate agent. Her name was Cindy Brooks. And I remember meeting Cindy for the first time. And, and Cindy is uh, the most Southern woman you'll ever meet. You can barely understand what she says sometimes. Her Southern drawl is that strong. And if you meet Cindy... The first thing she'll say to you all the time is, hey, hey. <laughs> it will sound exactly like that. And I remember meeting Cindy and her husband, Rodney, and, you know, we got in her Ford Expedition, and she drove us all over the area. I mean, she drives like a maniac. She's probably watching online right now. You do drive like a maniac. <laughs> and she drove us all over the place. And I don't know what happened, but God just did something in Rod and Cindy's hearts where they looked at this young pastor and his wife and it just happened organically. It wasn't like we begged and pleaded for it, but they just made a decision to love on us, to care for us, to be available for us. And over the course of eight to 10 years of our lives, I can't even begin to express the amount of impact it has had on me as a man and my wife as a woman, as a mom, a dad, and leaders. Their investment has changed our life. And now it's no longer Cindy and Rod. It's, it's mom and dad. I got a third set of parents. My daughter calls them Cece and Rod. And I'm telling you, there are people in our church this morning that, that are in need of, of, of a mentor, of a wiser person who's been there and walked that. Our church, you're in need of a community. I don't know what it is for you this morning, but I'm telling you, it all comes back to relationships. Because Jesus, he was asked by a Pharisee, what's the greatest command in all the Bible? All thousand pages of the book, what's the greatest command? And you know what Jesus says? He points to, to one word, relationships. He says, first and foremost, your relationship with God, that's primary, that's first. But if you truly love God, guess what? You'll step into a second relationship where you'll love others. And that's what the church is about. I mean, we get so confused. The church is not a building or a steeple or a program. At the end of the day, the church is all about people and relationships and if we're really all in for making more and better disciples of our community and our world, guess what it means for us? We're going to have to step in to relationships. Let's pray. God, thanks for this story. Thanks that your word is, is so amazing. The Bible says it's alive and active. And that's so true because you can take a story that was written thousands of years ago. And it's still alive in my life today. It's still relevant to, to our lives today. There's no book like it, God. And so we thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for, for showing us what relationships should look like. And I pray today that we'd be willing to drop our walls, 
to be vulnerable, to show people the real loss, that we'd get into community, that we'd allow people to invest in us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.